Hi everyone, it's David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice and a bit of an update on our show. Uh, it's June as you're listening to this, and we are taking a bit of a hiatus uh, for the month of June. We won't be bringing you any new full interview episodes, though we do anticipate a few news bonuses. But we have some changes ahead, and we'd like to tell you about them before they just hit everybody in the face. And I get to have with us to explain everything uh, our Ace in the Hole producer, Josh Rollerson, my partner in crime here. How are you, Josh? I'm good, Dave. I'm going to put that on my business card, Ace in the Hole. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Thank you. Not the partner in crime part, just well, that's Ace That's you. In the that's hole. you. Yeah, All right. For well, sure. Yeah, you can have either one or both. Yeah, so we're ha- we have some changes ahead, and we want to talk to you about them. We wound up season six uh, with our last episode. That was number 105 with Professor Cynthia Lee talking about use of force law changes. And when we come back, we'll be starting season seven. Uh, more significantly, uh, we've got some new arrangements that we're looking at that we really think will give us opportunities to not only continue the podcast at the qu- level of quality and insightfulness that you've become accustomed to, but to reach out and do some new things. We have some new partnerships on the way. So the first thing we're going to be doing uh, is we're going to affiliate with a new media network called Post-Industrial. And Post-Industrial is headquartered here in Pittsburgh. Uh, Josh, why don't you talk a little bit about Post-Industrial? Sure. Post-Industrial is uh, kind of a new media startup. It's just come about really, I I believe, just this year, maybe a year or so in the making. And it's comprised of some journalists who work for national markets but are based in Pittsburgh or have some connection here. It's part of this sort of push to really enhance and and expand local journalism. You're seeing a lot of media markets around the country. And this is uh, one of the really exciting ones happening in our part of the world. So it's sort of a two-part thing from what we've been able to, to mm-hmm. tell. Uh, That's right. On the one hand, you've got a an actual full-time media operation. They have a newsroom. They have reporters and editors, and they're working with freelancers, and they're putting out, I believe, a monthly magazine. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, a website, and they've got an, an email digest and a, a lot of uh, original content coming out of there. In addition to that, they have convened a sort of coalition of Folks like us, podcasters and yes. other content producers that are based in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. as the name suggests, the focus is kind of on Rust Belt issues, sort of uh, broadly defined issues that affect our community specifically, but also others like ours. Absolutely. And they were very excited to affiliate with us because we're created here in Pittsburgh. We often offer content and stories originating here in Pittsburgh, our longtime affiliation with WESA Public Media here in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was another big factor. They've heard that over the years. And so uh, we uh, look forward to all kinds of new possibilities uh, that are there with these new partners and collaborators getting into other other media streams, uh, maybe doing live events, all kinds of things. But most immediately, the change you'll probably notice first is that we're going to be using some advertising during the show. Uh, now, uh, nobody who listens to podcasts, I don't think, will be really surprised by this. Right, Do you yeah, agree? Definitely, yeah. Uh, I mean, th- this is something that you hear on a lot of podcasts. For sure. And it's it's something we have looked into in the past on this show and yes. had some opportunities and have walked away from some of them. One reason I think that this opportunity was particularly appealing was because of the local connection that we were talking about. Uh, but also, you know, I think we know that the content of the advertising is going to be a little bit more um, – uh, targeted toward 
perhaps our listeners or, or at least it's, it's – I don't think it's going to be too out of sync with what people will be expecting when they listen to criminal injustice. Absolutely. And, and I think that made a lot of sense to us. The thing to really understand is that it will give us the ability to do some new things, to uh, up our game in certain ways. It's already pretty up in my opinion. Um, uh, so I'm not, I'm not thinking that we, we have a lot of things we need to fix, but we'll have the ability to go above and beyond in certain circumstances than what we have done before. We will completely maintain our editorial independence. Nobody's going to be telling us what guests to have or what questions to ask, though uh, we may, through our network affiliation, have uh, opportunities that maybe wouldn't have come our way otherwise. And that's a good thing. Uh, we'll keep the quality of the show at exactly the high level it's been. The kind of things that you've tuned in for uh, will still be there all the way. So uh, that's the most immediate thing that we're going to do. And we think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a good uh, matchup for us. Now, there's more, too, as they say in those mm-hmm. late night commercials. Wait, there's more. Indeed, building on the theme of taking the show to the next level, another possibility that we've been looking at, and this is another business model that's going to be pretty familiar to a lot of podcast listeners and one that we've dabbled in, one that has some familiarity to us uh, insofar as we have our roots in public radio, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an industry in which two or three times a year, you drop everything and you go on the air and you ask people for their money. That's right. Want them to contribute. Want them to become members. Exactly. And we find that people, there's actually kind of a hunger for this. People want to feel like they are contributing something. But there is certainly a sector of super fans that they want to do that. So we want to create an opportunity for our listeners that are passionate about this show to also be supporters if they so choose and you know kind of be a part of that effort. But we really want to emphasize this is all carrots, no sticks. We are not taking anything away from our loyal listeners. We don't want to punish anybody that's been enjoying the free content. We're Uh going to continue providing excellent free content. But we're going to do a little bit more on top of that. That's right. We have some uh, some really interesting uh, ideas uh, uh, that we're cooking up, and we're going to offer them for those who might want to contribute, might want to become members. Nobody will have to do that. The show will still be there for everybody. But uh, keep your eyes open, your ears open over the next few weeks, couple of months. I think you'll see some uh, some interesting, new, fun things out there. Nobody's going to lose anything. It's all what you can gain as we go forward. And, you know, it's it's worth saying, uh, just to emphasize this, this isn't anything that's going to make anybody here in this particular studio rich. I can tell you that. I mean, this whole thing has been a labor of love from the beginning. It certainly hasn't been a labor to make a lot of cash. And uh, this isn't really going to change that. What it'll give us the ability to do is to bring ourselves to more listeners, to boost our signal, you might say, to uh, reach out and do some other things and get some more help that we can really use. All of this is by way of simply enhancing the quality of the product, bringing more to people who want to pay a little bit, going forward into uh, what is a more familiar world to, I think, most podcast listeners. I mean, I've actually had people ask me, how come there's no advertising? There's advertising on all the rest of the podcasts I listen to. So I don't think this is going to really uh, uh, surprise anyone in that respect, but it is for the purpose of enhancing what we do. Well, you know, I would add to that list of, of benefits that you mentioned to the membership model that we're, we're kind of pursuing now that, you know, in addition to 
providing us some resources that we don't currently have and opportunities to to do better and do more. Uh, it's also a, a, a way of building relationship with our listeners. We feel like yes. it will make us more responsive to what the people that are the most passionately devoted to the show want to hear. So to that end, we're looking for some help from our listeners as we uh, embark on this next stage. We want to kind of know more about who you are, first of all. We know we know a, a pretty good amount about who listens to the show in terms of raw numbers. We know that yes. there's a certain number who never miss an episode, and we have determined that that number meets the threshold that's necessary to, uh, to, you know, to, to try begin this. to monetize, right? That's right. But beyond that, we don't know a whole lot. We have some idea of where you are in the country, Yes, but we would like to know more about who you are. Yes, and if you can help us with that, we'd really appreciate it. In the short term, sometime over the next month or so, uh, maybe two, it just depends on how we can pull it all together, we'll be uh, asking you to respond to a listener survey. We hope you'll do that because it'll help us to target advertising that is going to be what you want to hear and might be interested in. So if we're going to do this at all, we might as well do it in a way that will be something that will be at least mildly interesting to you. Um, so I hope you will do that. I mean, what Josh said about engagement uh, has really been the most fun of anything. We love doing those Ask Dave segments. I got one uh, today. It was not uh, a, a call, but uh, somebody hit the, the Ask Dave tab and said, uh, I'm law enforcement. I'm out here in California. Um, I heard your segment about use of force law and what you said about the California proposal I think was right, but I'd like to hear you say a lot more about that. That's the kind of thing I just live for doing this, and I hope that this will build our ability to communicate with you and be engaged with you. So when you start hearing about a list survey. I hope you'll help us with that. Yeah, we, we really mean it. It is one thing that uh, I think is probably true of just about all of the listener feedback that we've gotten thus far, pretty much unsolicited outside of the Ask Dave context. But you mm-hmm. know, we hear from people who are in law enforcement, who are in the criminal justice system professionally or academically one way or another. Also, people whose lives and families and loved ones have been touched by that system. So many different perspectives that we get. Uh, and I, I feel like they've enriched the content of the show Absolutely. considerably. So if we can go about gathering that kind of uh, input in a, in a more systematic way, I think it'll be that much better. Absolutely. So we want to be engaged with you. We want to enhance that uh, process. You'll help us shape the content going forward. I always appreciate that. So many listeners have sent me examples of lawyers and judges behaving badly. And boy, I've used a few of those, as you know, those of you who are out there sending me that, that stuff. Uh, so please keep it up. Keep engaged with us on any level that you choose. It's up to you, but we appreciate all of it. Uh, on, the, on the subject of new things coming down the road, David, there's one more thing that we haven't talked about at all on the show, but a little bit of news uh, from you. Do you want to talk about your book project? Oh, yes. This is a project I've been working on for quite a few years. And, uh, you know, talking about post-industrial and our connection with Pittsburgh, this is a, a book uh, that is centered on a story that happened here in Pittsburgh. Almost 10 years ago, there was a, a very, very bad incident of violence between uh, three police officers and a young African-American man here. Uh, it split our city. It was incredibly divisive. Uh, and this was all before Ferguson and all of the other cases. Uh, fortunately, the young man did not die. 
And what that meant, among other things, is that he was free to tell his story. And the case went through multiple investigations, all out in public, multiple cases in the criminal court. The feds investigated, the state's attorney investigated, and it went through two full trials in federal district court here in Pittsburgh. And in the end, uh, there was a resolution that did not really suit anybody. I'm not giving anything away here. This is all on the on the public record, so it's not a spoiler thing. But uh, I have recently turned in the manuscript on this. I've been working feverishly on it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that yeah, I'm glad it's a story that is going to be told. And uh, we'll probably have some occasion to talk about that in upcoming episodes. You mentioned the timeline. That's what's particularly of interest to me. We've talked about this project, but I haven't seen your manuscript yet. <laughs> but I'm really keen to to get that perspective of like five minutes before Ferguson, essentially. This is one of those yes. cases. They happen all the time in cities all over the country, but it's really on the last, only in the last five years or so that it's been at the forefront of a national consciousness. And this is one of the last cases, I think, that didn't quite reach that threshold just because it wasn't you know, it wasn't a national topic in the way that it is now. Absolutely. I mean, it did get a little national coverage. If you look back, as I have it, all the media stories, it did pop up a few times on CNN and in some of the national papers. But we were, we just weren't talking about these things in the same way. We did not see them as a country as being part of a related whole. Right. And that's what really changed with Ferguson. I mean, our podcast is an outgrowth of Ferguson and all of those incidents. But before that... There was this case, among many, many others. But being here in Pittsburgh gave me access. I mean, I kind of watched this whole thing unfold. I had contacts with many of the players. Uh, and it made it a story that I simply could not resist trying to tell. It took some years to pull it all together for a whole variety of reasons. The book will be called A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations. And it should be out, we hope, by the end of the year or, if not, the, the beginning of next year. And you will certainly hear about it on the show. Well, it does. <laughs> I don't see how we could avoid that. At length. <laughs> well, in the meantime, we're going to take a little break, as you mentioned, a little breather, and then come mm-hmm. back in July with uh, the first of these changes being implemented. Sure. Yep. In the meantime, we want to leave people with a little something just to pass the time. Absolutely. We're going to rerun a couple of our favorites from uh, this past season. We're going to uh, hear again the episode with Matthew Horace, the former police officer, former federal law enforcement officer, uh, who told us about his book, The Black and the Blue, great episode number 96. And then Jamie Calvin of Chicago, the longtime journalist and human rights activist who did so much there over many, many years, who's still doing things there, broke the Laquan McDonald story and talked about transparency and policing, kind of forced on the police department in Chicago. Intensely interesting episode, number 97. There may be a few more if we decide we need to, uh, uh, to lengthen our break a little little bit, but that's what we're thinking about now. And of course, watch for some bonuses and things like that. I've accumulated a little bit uh, of, of stuff that needs to be recorded on some of my recent travels, and I'm, uh, I'm willing to, and able to bring those to you as well. 
All right. That's all coming soon. We're excited about it. Um, any final thoughts before we go? Well, uh, when uh, when we're done talking here, we're going to bring you a conversation I had on the show called The Confluence on WESA-FM uh, Public Radio in Pittsburgh with Kevin Gavin concerning the uh, First Circuit decision about the uh, use of drug treatment while incarcerated, a really interesting court decision, and had a great conversation with Kevin about that. But uh, more broadly, I'd just like to thank everybody for listening, uh, for engaging with us so often, for sending us your questions, your thoughts, your suggestions. I'd like to thank Josh, who always makes the show sound great, no matter how badly I do. And, uh, well, you know, it, this is going to be good. We're very excited about what's ahead. David, I just can't thank you enough for the opportunity to be involved in this. It is, it is my honor and my pleasure to make whatever small contribution I can to your excellent, important work. Well, pal, it ain't small. Um, that's all I could say. That's it from us now. Change is ahead. Here comes that material from the Confluence. We'll be back with you next time. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. This week, a federal appeals court addressed the right to treatment for an inmate who suffers from opioid addiction, a move that legal advocates say could have wide repercussions. Joining us to talk about implications for Pennsylvania is University of Pittsburgh law professor and WESA legal analyst David Harris. David, welcome back to the Confluence. Kevin, good to be with you. All right. It started in a Boston court talking about a rural jail in Maine that addresses the right to treatment for opioid addiction while incarcerated. David, is this the huge step that some analysts are saying it might be? Well, it could be. This this is a case that has now come out of the Federal Court of Appeals or the First Circuit, which covers Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Puerto Rico. So it's limited ge- geographically. But the, this is part of a larger argument about both health care inside jails and prisons and also about the proper role of drugs and medication in treatment for the opioid addiction we're seeing as a plague across the entire country. So to the extent that we're facing that in so many places, this will be looked at as a leading case, even if it doesn't bind any particular state except it's for that it was decided in. Now, the ACLU uh, in Maine uh, argued that withholding treatment would violate the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. Uh, Under the ADA, it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of disability, and this includes people who have gone through or are going through drug rehabilitation. Uh, Did that seem like a strong argument uh, from the ACLU to you? Yes, and that's because this is a congressional statute. The the, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act uh, has been basically strengthened over time uh, since its passage with regard to what it covers. And particularly, uh, there have been controversies from for years about the, whether addiction is a disease or whether it is something else. And I think in our society generally, particularly with the opioid crisis, we think of this as much more of a disease uh, um, occurrence than a moral failing. That used to be the other way of looking at addiction. Now we're looking at it as a health problem, as a disability even, uh, that needs to be treated. The other argument that they made in this case was on, based on the Eighth Amendment, 
And that's cruel and unusual punishment for these purposes. And you can't simply put people in prison and say, we're not going to give you proper medical treatment. You cannot withhold that in a way that is arbitrary. And that's really what this argument would be. So there was both a statutory and a constitutional Mm -hmm. argument, which made for a convincing argument before the First Circuit. And again, the First Circuit, New England area. Yes. But what can you tell us, realizing you're a legal expert, not a health professional. But what's happening right now, whether it's Allegheny County Jail or our state prisons, as far as treatment for inmates? Well, without getting into specifics, because we're talking about so many different counties, each with their county facility or one that they share with another county uh, in our state prison system, what's happening generally is that the prison system is becoming overwhelmed with addiction cases in the form of the inmates that they are housing. Um, As the police arrest and bring people in for criminal offenses uh, who have an addiction problem, these people, some large percentage of them, end up in our prisons and our jails. Mm -hmm. And our jails and prisons are not set up as addiction treatment facilities. We have the same thing happening and have had it happening for a long time with mental health. Lots of people with mental health issues end up in prisons and jails. And prisons and jails have now become so overwhelmed with these other kinds of social problems that would really be more appropriate to other kinds of social agencies um, that they face the choice. Do we treat them? Do we treat them properly? How do we do that when we're not set up for that? And it's a very, very difficult set of issues. So you see more and more prisons and jails saying, okay, if we're going to be a place with lots of addicts, unless we treat them, they're going to end up on the street someday with the same problem. And how are we going to be better off? But are the prisons, are the staff equipped to do this, though? No. I mean, to, in a word, no. I mean, there are very good, very dedicated professionals within the correction system who have jobs of, of helping people with addiction treatment and other, other uh, kinds of social issues. They do the best that they can. But do we have enough of them? Do we give them enough resources? Do we have programs of, of a scale that can really treat the full problem when people are in prisons? No. Uh, and to the extent that we're taking this issue, making it instead of a public health issue, a criminal justice issue, and just putting people in the criminal justice pipeline instead of treating them on the outside where we could do so at far less cost and more effectively and keep them connected with families and jobs and so forth, uh, it's not a good choice. But this is the kind of thing we've been doing for years. We treat these kinds of social ills with police, with jails and so forth. We do the same thing with schools. Mm-hmm. We put lots of problems on teachers and schools that really aren't education problems. So are we asking too much of our prisons? There's no doubt. There's absolutely no doubt. That's why we, we, we see what we have now, a mass incarceration problem. There are people in jails and prisons that definitely belong there. I want to make sure to say that. They can't live out among us. They are predators. But that's actually a fairly small number relative to the number we have incarcerated. Uh, we can't abolish prisons. I'm not in that camp, though there are people who say so. But we could do with far less people in them, put those resources into our communities to keep people from going to prison in the first place. But when they have these kinds of problems like opiate addiction, to treat that 
outside in the community as the public health problem that it very clearly is. When we put that into the prison system, there is no chance that the prison system will be able to cope and do as good a job as our outside agencies could. It's not their fault. So how might this uh, appellate court decision change what's happening now or maybe lead to a change? Well, it's a kind of leading case that other courts of appeal and federal district courts will look at and say, hmm, uh, if a person comes into the system with an addiction problem that has been treated with medication, at least one high up federal court has said, you can't just discontinue that treatment arbitrarily. Uh, you got to go ahead and treat it. So it will be looked at as a leading precedent even outside the four states in Puerto Rico where it governs, it's going to be something lots of courts will look to. David Harris is WESA's legal analyst, a University of Pittsburgh law professor, and he is the host of the Criminal Injustice Podcast. David, thanks as always. My pleasure, David. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Hey!